0: Episode 67 of The Passive Hang. Thanks for joining, guys. I know it's been a while, and today we are joined with Misha Schultz, who is a German coach based in Berlin who runs the King of Weighted, which is Weighted Calisthenics, and he joins us today with sharing his story plus his approach in developing commonly sought-after bodyweight skills such as the planche, handstand push-up, and one-arm chin-up. It's a really good chat, a lot of great insight, Misha has a very nuanced and deep understanding with a lot of these skills, especially coming from a biomechanical angle, and his insight is something that I think you guys will enjoy as well. We're going to get started. I'll see you in the episode. Thanks, guys, for joining once again onto the passive hang. I'm really excited today because I'm connecting all the way across to the other side of the world to Berlin with Misha or Michael Schulz, who is a um, German-based coach. Just reading off your Instagram profile, you say you help calisthenics athletes unlock their full potential injury-free. And I think that's always a really interesting one because myself being involved with a lot of bodyweight training after a certain stage yeah there is quite a bit of risk sometimes with certain body parts and things being injury prone so i'm keen to hear your thoughts around with that but maybe one place where i wanted to start was actually just asking back at the very beginning for yourself what got you actually interested in this type of training
1: so first of all thanks for for having me and hello to the crowd out there um Back in the days, um, I was just a regular gym bro, basically, Um, like shortly before my A-level started entering a gym because as every other guy, you know, growing some pecs, growing some (laughs) biceps. And uh, then I did this straight for three to four years. And Then uh, as today, we had a heat wave in in Germany uh, and the gym was very sticky air or had very sticky air, very hot inside and i just typed into google if there are gyms outside in in berlin and then there was exactly one back in the days and i just drove there and there was a crew of uh, russian guys um training calisthenics you know like these old mad bar style workouts basically you know running Mm -hmm. training cycles and, and stuff like this and I joined, and from that day on, um, I think for two to three years straight, I uh, went there almost every day. That's the the whole story.
0: <laughs> of course, it yeah, has it has to be crazy, crazy, crazy Russians as well. You know, outdoors doing, <laughs> doing they, that they're involved sort of
1: everywhere in calisthenics. It's it's all the Russians. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I read as well. You know. Um, did you have a different sort of background other than in training that you um that you're working in you were an engineer i'm not sure if i read that incorrectly or not like yeah so have you have you uh, been involved elsewhere other than you know in physical coaching
1: yeah so before like i studied electrical engineering for um a bachelor's degree and then I quit after one semester of a uh, master's degree in uh, mechanics, uh, because then everything with the coaching, Instagram, YouTube, that growed and, uh, you know, started to seeing a chance to step into uh, full-time self-employed. And during my time at the university, I worked at a big German company at Siemens, if you, you know this, mm-hmm. and uh, sold high voltage switches. So salesman, basically <laughs> engineering, salesman in, in before. But yeah, so, my my, uh, my theory background is uh, is engineering.
0: So from high voltage switches to planches, you know, that's uh, quite some basically. switch. <laughs> but that might <laughs> also explain a little bit about sometimes how you post a lot of interesting com- um, content around uh, angles and biomechanics as well. You know, um, certainly did you find that that background to be quite helpful when you're taking more of an interest into this type of training?
1: Yeah, so the the approach is basic mechanics in the end, which every engineer has in his uh, first two semesters, and that, you know, understanding of how machines work, how basic mechanic works, definitely helps to um, visualize and explain certain things in the human body in a very very simplified way it's just you know it's putting a model on a very very complex system to explain why you think something happens there's of course no no proof that it really is that way but it just helps to understand um how things work in a more visual and and simple way which is uh at the stage where the sport is now uh more than enough to really uh, help other athletes also understanding those uh, principles behind movements.
0: Yeah. How did you go about back in the early days as well, just educating yourself around this type of training?
1: Um, that was just a, a process. So uh, I started um, not with coaching directly. Like I had uh, with, the, with the Russian guys that I trained, I had like um, a group that i trained basically so it was more an instructor than a coach um on a, where i started and on the other hand i sold workout programs because that was the thing back in the days you know mm-hmm. handing out pdfs and word documents uh, at the beginning no editing at all it was just the routines that i trained i wrote them down and you know sold them for 20 bucks or something <laughs> and um whenever i received a question from a client or from the group i couldn't answer i looked it up and you know just did my research and read through blog articles youtube videos and then always taking a look at the references in the articles um reading through the study reading through the abstract seeing okay does that fit to my question yes then reading the full study And then just step by step and over the last 12 years that was a couple of thousand questions basically and that led to uh, a lot of knowledge now and that was actually always the process
0: yeah um it's funny like that how sometimes that's the best way to learn as well because you know you're directly solving someone else's problem as well. and But it does take a quite a bit of work, you know, researching all that, because I guess there's different levels of research that you can do, right? You can just simply type into Google and then just find the first thing that comes up and just accept that as the answer. So why do you think that you've developed a bit more of a deeper curiosity, it seems, around to, you know, even dig up those research papers, find the references, look up the references and seek for a greater understanding. Do you think that's just part of your character or that's something that you also put some intention behind to develop?
1: Mm, I just like to compare different answers to my problem and see which one is is more appealing to me. If they, you know, share similarities, you can dig more into the similarities because then this might be more true as with with fitness. And I consider like every physical activity sport is kind of like a fitness sport. Um, There's like a hundred ways to to reach the same thing. And so you need to take a look also at, at several solutions and then make sure you find one that fits your approaches the best. So it was not about um, finding the perfect answer. It was finding more than one and then seeing which one fits the best to what I think uh, works for me and for my clients. So it's always uh, putting together experience, a bit of bro science and uh, the evidence. And with this, uh, I always had the, the best results
0: yeah, it's really great What's um, I think, especially once you read something, it might be from a paper, but then you've also felt that yourself experience wise. And then like there, there's a, div- a very different flavor about that. Isn't there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess one thing that I was interested in, cause you mentioned back in the early days, you know, you were out there just training with the, with the Russian bros, um. How has your training evolved from, you know, what did it sort of look like from then and what does it look like now? Hmm.
1: So it's actually a pretty interesting uh, curve of learning. It started with super simple training and then when you start researching, you get into coaching, you try to make everything so complex and try to find the new best method and, you know, this approach, this approach, this approach. And then everything got very, very complicated. And now after like 12 years of experience, um, we're exactly at the beginning kind of again, uh, because I figure out my job and the job of the coach is to make training simple and not complicated. And so that was basically the curve starting pretty easy, you know, no too complex training structures, then super complicated. And now the last three to four years Again, getting more into uh, you know more simple training, trying not to you know involve super complex training protocols. Just really sticking to the basics, making the programs you know uh, approachable. Let's <laughs> call it like this. And yeah, from the from the movements, um, as I said, I had a gym background. So, uh, lower body training has never changed. Uh, That was always just, you know, regular gym style of training. So, the combination of powerlifting, so uh, back squatting, lunging, and, you know, some machine work. And upper body training changed a lot when I uh, started um, entering weighted calisthenics and weighted calisthenics competitions because competition training is uh, pretty you know, monotonous. It's uh, just, you have four exercises that build up basically 90% of the program. And then I had phases where I was more into skill training, phases where I was you know, focused more on, on the weighted part, but that was basically always the combination, weighted in skills with you know, different focus. So I had focus phases for weighted, especially in the competition seasons and skill-focused faces. And lately, um, as you know, I'm turning 30 next year, I'm pretty focused on you know growing the business. Now mm-hmm. it's more survival mode. <laughs> um, so trying to uh, get the content in for the community but still maintaining my level um, in all areas that I need to coach because you need to be able to show, you need to be able you know to film references and, um, yeah, so I don't consider myself an, an athlete anymore. In, in, in that case, I'm like mm-hmm. more into the, the business and the coaching perspective, which is my main focus. Like yep. my client should succeed and I don't need succeed anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so training at the moment has a, a lower priority, still higher than probably 99% out there. But you know, for myself, when I'm comparing it to, to where I was, it's now uh, on a, on a lower priority, definitely.
0: Yeah, and could you expand a little bit about what you mean by how it's um how how it's simple, then it's gone to com- it went to complex, then simple. Maybe uh, give a sort of idea what simple might look like versus complex, and then simple once again. Mm.
1: Um, good example where I totally changed my mind about uh, through the process of the last years was picking assistance exercises. You know, um, main lift is planche. I wanna get better in a planche. And back in the days, I've searched for the most specific assistance exercise that has 90% of the same movement as a planche has and try to, you know, put things together like that with, you know, a lot of specificity um, and stuff like this, whereas now, I put the main lift as the main lift and all the planche work I need to do, I do with planche itself, whether that be planche hold, uh, band assisted planche hold, uh, planche pushups, if that is something you're interested in, and that is my planche work. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. And assistance has two jobs. Now it should grow the muscles that I need for the planche. And it should force some uh, neuromuscular adaption to make me stronger for the planche and that's it and my body doesn't care if i do that with a dip with an overhead press with a bench press as long as the muscles are involved that does exactly the same job and that makes everything so much more simple um, because you're taking complexity out of the programs and it just you know putting the main lift at what at what it is it's the lift that you want to get stronger. So you train mm. that because you want to get stronger at it mm-hmm. and assistance has a, a different a different job. And uh, Yeah. yeah.
0: Why, why do you think that uh, we need the role of assistance such as that and that things such as that neuromuscular strength or hypertrophy couldn't be just developed by that specific element or some sort of maybe regression intensity wise of that sort of element as well what are your views on that
1: hmm. so it definitely can um it all comes down to what else next to the element itself you have in your mind that you want to achieve that you want to uh you know have in your program if you just focus on planche um you can basically just do planches regressions and, and all that stuff. But um, usually you won't want to stay a skinny guy, you know, you want to develop a nice physique. You also want to progress in other lifts and um, assistance, at least in, in the programs that I write that benefits the planche, then also has the job of benefiting a dip, making you better and weighted, growing you um, a nice upper body. So it has more than one than run- function and uh, that supplements each other pretty nice. But in the end, it definitely works to just get stronger and also get bigger by the skills and the uh, regressions itself. Um, Which way is more uh, efficient? I can't really tell as I never worked with clients that only did skill work. So I really have no reference which which way is better. I, I know that my ways work, but that doesn't exclude other ways. Um, which definitely also works. And um, very important to, to say is also if you're looking at especially the hard body weight skills, um, working with a lot of skill volume, a lot of whole time, a lot of regression, that only works for a very small portion of people, which is like I'm putting out random numbers, no evidence. Uh, people like below 70 kg. And mm. I don't know, below one meter 70, something like that. Mm. Because only if you're very light, if you have good leverages, um, the total intensity that a skill provides is something you can survive for a longer time. If you mm. are a guy over 180, um, having, I don't know, 85 to 90 kg, um, your joints and tendons are probably dead after um, three sets of a planche lean that you do two times a week and with this amount of training volume you will achieve shit nothing happens with that (laughs) or at least you need a super super long time and for those athletes a different approach is is needed whereas if you're you know a smaller guy with good leverages you can train planche three to four times a week with hold times like total hold times per session of a minute or more and it will work and you will progress obviously way faster than the heavier guys so Mm. um that is, that is tricky. Also, if you see, you know, a lot of this, the stuff on YouTube, on Instagram, I mean, the guys that are amazing front lever athletes, planche athletes, mm-hmm. they have all one thing in common, and that is their size. So you need to be careful with, with these a- advices, because you're running into uh, injury, or at least, you know, overuse um, pretty, pretty quickly.
0: I think this is an important point to sort of follow up on, right? Because it's so easy to play the comparison of someone else's development or that they seem to be able to do all these things, but you might have completely different limb lengths, your body weight uh, lengths as well. And so just that extra bit of angle, say on a planche lean, right, is exponentially so much harder for someone versus another person, right? And um, that is quite hard to control, right? Versus when you just have weights, it's more universal. It's, you know, 2.5 is 2.5 to kilos for, for everybody versus like it's a bit of a, the trick. I think um, for myself, when I first started as well with more body weight-based training, that was something that I didn't fully come to appreciate as much because you're just trying to try your hardest and, you know, push yourself as much as possible and just ask yourself, like, why, why isn't it happening at times and not considering things, um, uh, those, those sort of factors. So yeah. Do you, do you think that's one of the sort of most common misconceptions around like calisthenics training that, that you think that most people just are not aware of? Yeah.
1: If that basically it's that. So the the difference between relative and absolute intensities. So a guy that is tall and that is heavy can have exactly the same strength as a lighter guy, but the heavy guy does a tuck planche and the lighter guy does a full planche, but they are same strength, same absolute intensity, but the relative intensity compared to the body weight is uh, totally different. So um, I think that is what you need to always uh, consider if you compare your, your process to, to others because you are not so much weaker. You just have a different starting point. Mm. And that is the same also with your uh, training background, training history. Like um, we're working with a lot of athletes and what you can see um, what a, plays a huge huge, huge role in athletes development is their history of sports. Um, like I have clients that, uh, started training in their later, uh, later life. So they dropped into calisthenics at 25 or at 30 years old, and they had mm-hmm. no real training background mm-hmm. and their, um, the adaptiveness of their central nervous system is so bad. Like it takes them months to years to learn a handstand um, Mm -hmm. because their central nervous system is never been forced to adapt to movements. It's never been, you know, forced to playful movements. And so the, the learning curve of those athletes is very small compared Mm -hmm. to when you have an athlete who has, I don't know, a fighting background, a volleyball background, anything that forced him lifelong to adapt to learn new skills in a in a a physical way and we have clients then tell them okay try a handstand and they're trying it three to four times and they stand because they are so adaptive um, Mm. the nervous system knows what to do and they just learned the skill in their earlier training career and that is also something you can never out train Um, and that also marks uh, some people call it talent which kind of you know, fits it, but in mm-hmm. the end it's talent you worked for in, in other fields of sports in before. And this is also it, the impact is, is huge because the learning curve is so, so much faster if you really had a, a training background, especially in your younger ages. So from, I don't know, mm. age six to, to 15, six to 12, whatever. In if you had a sports background in that time, um, that is something you will benefit from uh, your whole life.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting area, and I do want to dig into about that. And about when you um, yeah, uh, what what you find out about people, you know, when you first work with them, you know, with, with training histories and, and such, but, um, yeah, I just wanted to circle back to what you were talking about before around, um, using that example of, of the planche and uh, how you're saying that you might supplement that with uh, accessory work, uh, with, uh, one aimed at neuromuscular strength development versus hypertrophy. So sort of like in actuality in practice, you know, how, how might that look like where you might do it for the main lifts like a set of planche holds that sort of thing and then there'll be like sort of two sections of accessories that would be structured at those two sort of goals or would that might be in a whole separate session or a whole separate mm-hmm. uh, block like what yeah what's your sort of normal take on that
1: mm-hmm. um context matters uh, definitely um in in that field um giving you two examples. If I have a, a client that is more into weighted calisthenics, um, he has different training cycles than another client who has no peaking faces. So no faces where he needs to have his peak performance. With those competition clients there, we definitely have faces with reduced intensity and faces with high intensity. And they're assistance is also designed to match the weighted calisthenics goal and so there the neuromuscular um, adaption component in those off-season phases is pretty small so even though planche is one goal mm-hmm. we just might have um, one to two, two uh, one two three sets um, of these higher 80 plus one uh, or m intensities that you consider um, really driving the neuromuscular coordination um, whereas the other client that um, has not this um, competitive uh, background, there you can work more in um, in a concurrent way. So you, as you said, you can have days with heavier assistance and days with lighter assistance, or you can have A and B works with heavier work and and lighter work. Um, in the end, just make sure both is both is in. How you structure it in the end, there are hundreds of, of ways uh, how you can make this. What I usually do, just to give you an example, because I know uh, if you're listening, you want to hear one day how can I do it? And so I'm trying to, to give you something that can work um, is I put the after the warm up, I put the planch holds first. Um, just take a look at your progression, and I try to have at least 30 seconds of whole time per session to really force the adaption and really spending a lot of time in in my progression to get better then uh, compound lift assistance and here a system that works pretty good is a top and back off system so you have one heavy set in a strength range so something in the rep range of one to five if uh, 80 plus uh, percentage intensities, and then to match volume, so hypertrophy work, you do lighter back off sets um, mm-hmm. with then five reps plus in a lower intensity range just to really get enough volume for that lift in, and everything afterwards is. Uh, health assistance so it can be external rotation work it can be abduction work it can be more hypertrophy assistance for other muscle groups that you know you also need and uh, that is a structure that works really good and assistance regarding planche any shoulder flexion dominant main lift does the
0: job Mm -hmm. Um,
1: very good here
0: so so something like the the dip would be One that you would use as a, as a basic sort of accessory that you could just modify in those intensity ranges.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That is, that is mandatory. So you need a compound lift that you can load up in, in, in different ranges. Yeah.
0: Uh, Interesting. And you know, with this idea of like a focus around main lifts then about structuring it, so do you normally also like to structure sessions where it's just all based around one main lift such as the planche or the, the front lever or whether it's the press, that sort of thing? Um, or is it sometimes you mix it where you might be working on multiple things at, at once in the same session? And also, you know, maybe what are your thoughts around um in terms of what's what's a good sort of goal limit you know there's always like the uh, the saying that you can have too many goals right and then be tried to be spread mm. too too thin so like what do you what do you um what are also your thoughts around what's a good level of goals to limit yourself to keep yourself focused mm.
1: um so from the goals you're really working towards you're not good at uh, one or two max and for the goals where you already have a high baseline, um, you can put in a lot more. So giving an example of what I mean, just taking my own training. Um, if I use a handstand push-up on my level, I can use that as regular assistance because I can easily get three sets of six to eight reps and I can use that as hypertrophy assistance. Whereas for another athlete, the handstand push-up requires a high level of skill And the baseline of that skill is is pretty low. So if you put that planche together with handstand push-up, that would be overkill for this Mm. athlete. Whereas for me, that would work perfectly. So for the skills where you really have a a low baseline, one or two a session max, because you need a a low level of pre-fatigue for those skills and you need a high amount of focus. So depending on what type of athlete you are, one, Or two um,
0: works. Okay. And in terms of, um, I guess, still continuing on this planche example, because, you know, we can keep on digging (laughs) always deeper into (laughs) this. uh, There's always like a lot of um, interest around, you know, movements like that. Uh, A common sort of um, point or people always discuss is around like the effectiveness of like dynamics versus static hold right mm-hmm. like with the planche specifically you know planche push-ups versus just holding a more isometric position right like what what are your sort of views on that because um, you mentioned before like um use the the push-ups as, as, as well so you know is it good to sort of just cycle through them or to stick with one particular one i know it might be um more context based on what someone has in mind for their specific goal. Uh, but if that is the mm-hmm. case, you know how does that relate to that, um, that, that goal as well?
1: Mm-hmm. So for specific hold adaptions, the hold is king. So getting better in holds, you get by doing static holds in that position. Human bodies also have some kind of angular adaption. So you get really better and stronger in the angle that you train. Mm. Um, when it comes to hypertrophy and strength training, bigger range of motions like you know, stretch and shortening cycle of a muscle is superior towards an isometric because otherwise no one would deadlift. Everyone would just hold that bar somewhere mm. because the isometric is superior to the uh, dynamic, which is not true. Dynamic is superior when it comes to, to muscle growth and to, uh, to strength work. So um, if you go with the idea of putting assistance into barbell lifts, into weighted calisthenics lifts, um, the dynamic component of the skill itself you need is almost zero um, because you get that hypertrophy work and that strength work from the other lifts. If you want to extend the skill work Um, because that is more fun to you you're more interested in that you don't want to work with all the other stuff then uh dynamic assistance for the skill itself is very important because you need to put range of motion um into the movement to grow it uh, to grow the muscles and you know to force uh adaption in uh, in strengths and hypertrophy so um, that would be the difference here so both is needed Mm. but um static is the more important one because the dynamic one can be uh, replaced.
0: Is uh, your comment around that about how um, with a larger range of motion being more beneficial for the goal of hypertrophy, is that why, um, I see you always post a lot about uh, sometimes like dips and weighted dips and like dip-dip cues, is that why that's like a, a favorite choice of yours in this sort of uh training realm to use as as a as a tool, uh because obviously versus like a um a plant push-up or a plant uh like where you can't uh, your your range of motion is um not that big as composed to if you're on a bar and then you're you're mm-hmm. coming all the way down into a deep dip and then and then coming back up.
1: Mm, not quite. Um so History-wise, I use the weighted dip because I'm the weighted dip guy, you know? (laughs) So that is is the the first point. And as we always coach with, like, you know, every coach has his style. And our style is a lot based around this weighted calisthenics Cosmos lifts. Uh, Mm. So that is why our toolbox is, uh, first choice is always the weighted calisthenics part. Um, It definitely also works with other lifts um now cherry picking why i like to use um the dip is uh over like planche push-ups or other things that definitely also work so just because i prefer the dip uh, pretty (laughs) important here um it does not mean that other ways are not uh, the same uh worked in the same way but it's um on a coach perspective it's definitely easier to coach Um, because uh, putting progressions uh, works very, very easy. Um, Risk-wise, it's also easier to program because I can just, you know, control intensities and rep ranges via the the weight. And uh, if you compare, I put 50 kg on a dip versus I have like somewhere in between a 60 to 90 degree angle of hip extension. Like, you know, going with a ruler to my client and measuring the hip angle does not work. But with (laughs) dips, I know he got five kg stronger in his estimated one rep max in the last four weeks. Mm. And then I can, you know, really measure if what we are doing works. So it makes the job as a coach easier. And why I like um, the dip in general as assistance also for calisthenics is that um, it teaches you good shoulder mechanics uh, good shoulder movements not mechanics because uh, the dip at least in the way that we teach it uh, you work with a strong depression and also at least in the negative part with a strong protraction and depression protraction you need a lot in planches you need that uh, a lot in handstand push ups uh, especially on on the way down so the carryover of those positions is uh pretty good
0: Ah, oh, that's, that's interesting yeah to use it Yep. But that that that's a nice point. With yeah, you're getting that carryover with that scapular position there being being strengthened um, through via via the dip. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was because uh, you mentioned it's um, using a, a tool such as this, it's uh, easier for you to track client progress. I mean. Um, what are what are some ways sometimes that you see clients when they get faced with sticking points like why why that is um, if if they do encounter sticking points um, and how do you sort of uh, then diagnose it and try and try and work around it like what do you think from your experience when you see what what's normally causing a potential sticking point
1: with with uh, lever skills um, we like to use something that I call the progress backup. So you have a planche or front lever. And in our case, we train that together then with a dip or a weighted pull-up. And um, if you take a look at um, the pull-up or the dip, you can with the estimated one rep maxes, you can really calculate the process. You can calculate the progress. And if a client has a sticking point or a plateau phase where uh, the lever does not seem to change, um, because we're working now for eight weeks on the advanced tuck and it still looks the same. It's still on six seconds, nothing happens, but I can uh, tell my client, look, in that t- same six weeks time frame, you leveled up your dip by 2.5 kg. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of time until you achieve the new level of strength that is required to just push your legs out five centimeters more, because mm-hmm. it is a new level of strength that you need. And with this, um, I can really prove that something happened, you know, that we are developing, that you're really getting better, even though nothing happens in, in the skill itself. And you all out there know these sessions where you uh, mysteriously uh, suddenly are able to do a new progression, which is mm-hmm doesn't happen by accident it's what you worked for the last week so um, progress expecting it to be linear is is always wrong it's it's never like that Mm. um so um getting the loop back to your questions is probably the first thing you need to make sure is that you're really having a sticking point um because often it's not you are really you are progressing you're just unpatient um if you really have a sticking point, um, we probably need to define what a sticking point is uh, because it's definitely different from exercise to exercise, from skill to skill. Um, in our case, I think you mean a sticking point, a certain point in time mm-hmm. where you cannot progress further from because something in the chain of the body is, is too weak.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Probably that's the definition that we are working with now.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the planche get is a really interesting example because it can feel like you get really stuck in a certain position. Right. And then to open the yeah. legs up even one half a centimeter more, right. Like say for me going for the, into more and more advanced open tuck, it just feels just like exponentially harder um and so sometimes trying to identify that you're still making progress when even yep. though visually it looks the same maybe yeah it can sometimes be um uh, like de- demotivating but you are right like sometimes the strength demands to just get to that next one is 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 so much so uh, even though it might look the, the same you know it's not the mm-hmm. um it, it's not for you to go okay like just throw out that approach into the bin and, and start some new approach, yeah. you know, it might just be keeping patient and measuring progress in a different way or in, in, in a different, um, sort of, uh, uh way of, of strength to, to, to keep mm-hmm. yourself motivated to go. Nope. Like things are still working well.
1: You definitely also have different stages of, uh, progression next to just more leverage. Um, the first one that gets, uh, Very, very obvious if you're working with a lot of clients is what I like to call body awareness. So having the same client the first time doing a tuck planche versus him doing a tuck planche after eight weeks, it's the same leverage, but after eight weeks, you can see he knows what he is doing. You know, you Mm -hmm. you have the feeling he now willingly can engage a protraction. He willingly can flex his abs. He willingly can straighten up the arms. Whereas the first tuck planche was survival mode. So even though <laughs> visually nothing happens, really, you can still see that there was a, a lot of progress happening in the, in the technique and the body awareness and just, you know, being able to willingly enter a certain position. So that can take a long time. Um, second uh, part of progression is how the exercise feels because, six seconds of a tuck planche can feel totally different than six seconds of a tuck planche um you know uh, regarding discomfort stability and all that stuff so again you made process so first step body awareness second step how it really it really felt and um, if this still is getting better even though the leverage is not getting better um you are on the on the right path and mm-hmm. then uh, you just need to keep in mind that the planche is a, it's a bitch. It's really that's <laughs> it's like, uh, it's a super uncomfortable, unhealthy, not human like position. You want to put your body in and it wouldn't be that cool if it would come easy. So, uh, just be prepared that it's, it's fucking heavy and it takes forever. And, uh, you, you know that the time from progression to progression like tends to double each time you, you unlock a new one so the journey from straddle to full uh, mm-hmm. might take you another year even though from tack to straddle just took you one year yeah so um yeah
0: well that's what we call the grind right the eternal grind you just got to keep on going <laughs> yeah uh, how do you maybe just uh, another take on this thing around working sticking points. say if it's more based around um, uh, something like the handstand push-up which has a bit more you know of the balance element as well as the strength. if, if someone is struggling with um, getting that uh, handstand push-up and that's more from just the, um, the skill perspective like how, how do you normally advise and navigate around that?
1: So there, the, the biomechanic knowledge is pretty helpful. If you're looking at a movement and see how the, the joints move and how the athlete shifts certain muscles into um, the movement or shifts them out, um, you really can see if it's a strength issue, if it's, you know, more a skill issue, if it's a strength issue, then uh, the answer is always load management. You just need to put him on on regressions uh, that he can handle. And in 99% of the cases, it's always load management. So also, if you see all my posts about the biomechanics, in the end, you can avoid 99% of these errors if you just decrease the additional weight a bit. Mm. So basically, knowing the biomechanics just help you to figure out that you're ego-lifting. (laughs) <laughs> um, but it's, it's important anyway, because yeah. you need markers to, to find that out. Mm-hmm. If it's um, a skill issue, which, which also happens, especially in, in the beginning phase, or if you're working with athletes that are already pretty strong, but just lack in, in, in balance uh, and stuff like this, it's a queuing that you need. So uh, you need to find um, the right sentence that makes it clear for the athlete to know which muscles to engage to, you know, being able to imagine how it should feel like, um, because, you know, with an advanced athlete, you say, um, you know, move hips into PPT and he knows exactly what he needs to do. Whereas you have another one, um, you need to tell them maybe suck in the abs, um, you know, squeeze the squeeze the glutes, something Mm -hmm. like this, um, open up the chest, whatever works, uh, for that certain athletes. so skill-wise, you need to cue it with uh, coaching cues.
0: And skill-wise, in terms of like programming, would you sort of have that then, you know, as the main lift, and it's just go for it, try and accumulate singles before moving on. Like how much that um, that occur? Because you know, I've I've been through that before, where say um, you kind of have the strength, and then you're working on the, this uh, skill, but then you might have a, a really bad session where you just like can't Mm -hmm. get any right and then you get kind of a bit frustrated because it feels like you haven't done much work but you have but you haven't really like completed any sort of reps Mm -hmm. so then it's kind of like oh what do i do what do i do now so yeah how do you how do you normally approach that
1: with uh handstand push-ups i like to increase the degree of freedom the athlete has um starting with a regular pike push-ups, going over to floating pike push-ups where you then add some hold time in the free position so the athlete can get uh, adapted to that You know, combination now because at first you have a strength exercise and then you put a balance component in and you need to make sure that uh, you dose that right because if you put too much balance in, you need to focus on the balance and you cannot focus on, on pushing anymore and you will fall. So uh, I really just uh, increase the degree of freedom. So with pike push-ups, then having a piked hip with the feet in the air going over to a straight hip. If that works pretty good, you know, that shoulder stand movement kind of, um, then you can start working also with negatives. So you work from the bottom up and then from top down. And if those movements look stable and you have the feeling that the athlete is is able to control it, then we're putting in attempts so you know a coaching command would kind of look like uh, the client has uh, five sets of negative singles um, with three counts of a bottom pause and then Mm -hmm. I write stuff in like when the last session was pretty dope I write in this time if you feel comfortable in the bottom position try to push up Mm -hmm. and then we see what happens because you you never know when when the time is you always need a a bit of attempting, a bit of trying, especially mm-hmm. with, with skills. And then we see how far he can push up. And then if he can push up a bit in the next session, I say, okay, now arch the back a bit more to be able um, to push up. Because mm-hmm. the first hands and push up, it shouldn't be clean. It should you know, be a success. It should go up. And then from that point, we're cleaning it up a bit more. And that's usually uh, the process. So just really giving more degrees of of freedom and then um, trying to produce um, a success moment. And then from that point on uh, cleaning it up again.
0: Yeah, I like that. It's sort of embedded in the work that they know that they can complete, but it's kind of like uh, once they're getting to that upper end end of the that stage it's kind of like you know if you feel like it just just go for it and then f- feel that and experience it and then it's sort of like yeah once that starts clicking a little bit then you can yeah. more of a focus um focus on it right uh, more, more direct work
1: yeah. yeah because you need to really uh stop trying to have everything perfect at first um just get shit done and then everything will follow over time that's also, like, mm-hmm. we, we talked about Harry uh, in in uh, mm-hmm. uh, before the, the podcast. And that was also an eye-opening moment um, that I had. He had a handstand a seminar for my clients. And he was, at the beginning, like, fuck the straight line. And everyone <laughs> was like, huh? <laughs> Why? <laughs> because, like, he was totally right. just balance if you cannot balance with you know an archback or however your shape looks like don't even dare to try to you know get into that uh, perfect alignment and uh, that is true for for all the other skills Um, the only exception that we have here is that you need a certain amount of control um, at least in, in coaching to make sure that you don't get your clients injured so the, the level where you let your clients uh, attempting needs to be a level where you can make sure that the movement is controlled enough that uh, the client is not likely to get injured. Yeah. Anything else um, you can do later, and, you know, let the let the client succeed. And yeah. don't try to have everything perfectly clean in the first place.
0: And I'll just do a shout out to, to Harry or H- Harry Williams for for people who um, didn't get that reference, um, mutual friend of ours, and yeah, big proponent of just uh, especially around the balance, um, very very uh, helpful views I think for for everybody. Um, and yeah, but, you know, in the handstand push up as well, like you were saying, uh, with that sort of like a injury risk mitigation, it kind of has that inbuilt in itself, right? Like if you if you're not going up, you're not going up anyway. Like it, <laughs> you're just going down. That's it's not going to happen. And certainly, yeah, when you, you when you finally go up as well, it is looking like uh, in in whatever form that it takes, right? But you don't really care because you, you've gotten up. That's the that's the main yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to jump over a little bit to you know pulling and for things such as like. um, Uh, you know, a common body weight goal might be the um, one arm chin or the one arm pull up. Um, But uh, I know, well, at least for me and the people I know, you know, there's a a lot of um, views around this, especially around with like injury risk and injury risk management. As soon as you start switching over to something on on one limb, you know, the the risk profile of that uh, increases a lot. So, yeah, I wanted to get your views on how you sort of Guide people towards if they had that mm-hmm. goal of a one-arm chin in in mind. You know, do you look for certain specific markers for a two-arm chin um, before moving on to mm-hmm. that? And you know, how do you integrate sort of that approach mm-hmm. with weighted cal- calisthenics to prevent, hopefully, like any sort of injury from happening?
1: First of all, we might uh, take a look at other sports and you know compare if you. Take a look at powerlifting and having a powerlifter that uh, twice a week tries um, a random one rep max attempt on the deadlift with a weight he's not sure he can pull. He just tries to to pull that up. And that is in an extreme form what a lot of calisthenics athletes are doing with one arm pull-ups. It's a max load. It's sometimes even 120% one RM load because you cannot fully pull it up and athletes are attempting it uh with five six seven eight singles in the sessions and that two times a week and they wonder why after three to four weeks uh they end up with a golfer's elbow and a shoulder impingement um because they were just overloading in in a so rapid way and uh that is something you totally should avoid when it comes to one arm pulling Getting the loop back to, to the markers, um, I have uh, a marker, which is roughly uh, 75% of the body weight pulled in a weighted pull-up or chin-up, whatever you train. Um, for one start rep notes, with, max? Yeah, yeah, for one rep max to start with specific uh, one-on pull-up conditioning. Um, For some athletes, this value is enough to already finish a one arm pull up again, depending on the limb lengths, the leverages, the the body weight the athlete has, some can even do it before. Um, Again, the taller guys, they always need to do more. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's like those 75% is just the market that I start uh, implementing more one arm specific uh, conditioning. Um, Then um, a lot of curls to uh, condition the elbow joint, which is most likely, um, you know, to be the limiting factor there, uh, injury-wise. And if you really, in the time before, um, conditioned it a lot with arm training, um, any kind of curling variations, you, the, the time to the next injury ex- extends a lot because the, the joint is prepared, it's more conditioned. And especially at the beginning, uh, only work with half ROM. Uh, So roughly to 90 degree in the elbow joint because the top position is pretty Mm -hmm. arm dominant. Uh, You pull uh, a lot with the biceps there. Um, So I'm just skipping that part and just do the the bottom range of motion because uh, as you're working on longer muscle lengths in that position anyway, the carryover is pretty good to the the full element later on and it decreases the, the risk of injury
0: that's Uh, interesting yeah i haven't heard about that approach where you only work to that to that bottom range and and then not go to that that full full lock off um and you're saying yeah you've seen that that dramatically hopefully helps um reduce risk mitigation it um in in this case
1: yeah definitely we use it especially with with one on pull-ups a lot and then all the other stuff that you can find in the internet works too. So banded work with different variations. You can work with dream machines. So, you know, uh, body weight reduced work. Mm-hmm. Um, there is again, a hundred ways that work. As long as you get the load management correct, every way works uh, in, the, in the same way.
0: I think that's probably the, um, the mistake that or the misconception around that because yeah you can sort of like kind of just try and jump in, in on it and start like loading up that volume as you and I th- I think that's a really great example that you showed there with um, comparing it to like powerlifting as well because logically someone just wouldn't do that right but then there is something yeah. a- about that the fact that you know you can just jump into something such as like um, a heap of ex- eccentrics and stuff because you can just try and hold on for as long as long as you can but suddenly there's that amount of load going through the whole system is, um, is so much right. And it's hard to, hard to, or it's hard to underestimate. Oh, it's easy to underestimate that with, um, with this sort of movement, unlike maybe like, uh, uh say the planche, you, you nothing's, you're just going to fall over. Right. So so yeah. the, the risk of that is, is quite low versus this where you can actually kind of hold on quite, quite for some, um, a bit longer than maybe what you're ready for.
1: Yeah. And also the, the execution itself, uh, because you can do one arm pull-ups with the the shoulder blade being, you know, in a full elevation, no stability at all. And, you know, swinging up there Um, or you can have it in a controlled fashion with a proper stabilized shoulder joint. Um, These are again, totally different things. So even though you can do a one arm pull-up, doesn't mean you should do one because the way you are executing it um, is not safe um, to be to be executed often. They, you and, just need to be careful. Yeah.
0: And working up to that, you know, point before you go into more specific, say like one arm chin, one arm pull up work, um, working up to that 75%, uh, one rep max. Um, yeah. What sort of approach do you take there? Is that again, um, similar like what we discussed before where the, a weighted pull-up would just be like your main lift? Um, and then if in that case, like, what would be the accessories around that?
1: Hmm. Um, the, the good thing about the weighted part, um, again, reference to, to powerlifting, is you barely need assistance um, because you can match volume and all the, the requirements that assistance exercise would have in, in, in skill work. Doesn't fit here because you can accumulate a lot of volume with that main lift itself. Uh, you can control the intensities. Uh, you can put variations of that lift to avoid overusing injuries. So, you know, you can supplement the chin up with a pull-up and so on. So um, the amount of assistance you need um super, super low. It actually just comes down to isolation and health movements. That you need there. So you know, with the with the weighted pull-up, put a bit of um, a bit of curls in, a bit of external rotation work in, and you're good to go. And for them, you know, holistic training approach for mm-hmm. uh, complete physique. You might also integrate some rowing volume, uh, but even that is not needed, mm-hmm. because if you also took a look at the powerlifters, um, how they train their legs, they squat. And that mm-hmm. makes up 90 percent. putting again out random numbers it might be a bit less but the mm-hmm. main part is always squats and then yep. from time to time you put in maybe a bulgarian split squat or a leg press or a leg extension something but the you can be a successful powerlifter with just squatting
0: mm-hmm.
1: well, Phoenix, uh- the same is, is true you can be a great pull up athlete by just doing pull ups yep. a little bit of you know uh, assistance work so um, yeah
0: so in this How example do you
1: program that yeah is again also 100 ways uh, possible
0: so in this example yeah you can be like a bit more specific in just working in that movement itself and just working in the relative intensities by controlling like how much load basically you're, you're putting on and working in the different rep ranges, which yeah, you could going back to what you mentioned at the start, you can just keep it super simple, right. Rather than cycling through all these, all these different exercises um, versus just uh, just on, on that one which is, uh, yeah, interesting. So you mentioned a bit, uh, about, yeah, maintaining the sense of health and, you know, with doing the, the biceps, um, you know, yeah, what are you, your views on the sort of movements around that, uh, you mentioned external rot- um, rotation for, for a bit. Another common one is around, you know, like lower trap development for overhead movements. Like, uh, yeah. What, what do you see as the sort of, uh, muscle groups and the exercises to help support like the more common calisthenics, body weight, uh, goals, um, to, to keep the shoulder function healthy and everything operating, um, operating well.
1: Um, no. Basically, the, the main thing that is needed for almost all athletes is really the external rotation part, as um, all upper body calisthenics movements are internal rotation dominant, as the prime movers are always chest, front delts, and lats. And these are all in a, they all pull your upper arm in, and so your shoulder into internal rotation. And, um, If you're training close to failure at a certain point, your rotator just cannot stabilize this properly anymore. And so you need some extra volume to to balance this imbalance uh, out again. And um, I need to be careful with my point of view on mobility uh, because I think uh, I and your crowd (laughs) have a totally different uh, approach on that. Uh, Putting that simple is... uh, Mobility itself as a goal has usually no place in in my coachings because that's just not what we do. So, we don't coach people uh, to to learn a pancake, to learn a middle split. Um, Sometimes we do that, but that is never the, the main focus. And for us, movement and so movement assistance, mobility work is really a tool that we just take out if it's needed for certain things. Mm -hmm. So um, what you told with uh, the handstand, if someone has not sufficient overhead mobility or just not the strength really in the lower traps and somewhere to really activate um, that proper shoulder flexion in the end ranges, then we need to do mobility work for that. We need to do movement work for that. Um, But if he can do that, I don't need the mobility part, mm-hmm. you know, same with, uh, with other lifts. Like if someone has, uh, a proper depression in the pull-ups, he can activate that pretty good. I don't need to put him on five sets of active hangs in before, just because someone told it's, it's something good to do. Um, just take a look at your body, take a look at your movements, see what is not working. Then first thing you check is if you're just moving too much weight. Because most of these things go away automatically if we put that in what we talked about a few minutes earlier, which is load management. Mm-hmm. If you don't overshoot too fast, you also are less likely to develop this small um, you know, links in the chain that does not or do not seem to, to work that well. So first thing would be load management, and if it's still not working, then... Uh, You try to work around with assistance work like Mm -hmm. uh, trap three raises, active hangs and all that stuff uh, you can do, but it's never, never plays a big role Mm -hmm. um, in healthy athletes. If you're starting to do stuff with, you know, a precondition, forget everything I just said, then it looks uh, different again.
0: Yeah. I like it though. It's like going back to what you say around trying to keep it simple for people. And it's kind of like, if you, if, if you're observing that they don't need this extra volume, that's basically what it is, and then yeah, they can just focus on what they need to achieve their, their goals, basically.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: What are your, um, so, in terms of modulating and increasing intensity, you've touched on it a bit here and there, but um, you know, other than the most obvious ones, such as like adding a few seconds or adding another rep to something, like um, do you, do you have um, uh, uh, what do you sometimes look for in terms of like uh, measuring intensity? Do you use some something like the tool of time under tension? um to to modulate intensity you know if so yeah like how, how do you like to use it
1: mm-hmm. um time under tension almost never um just with lever skills obviously uh you can increase volume with hold time you need to do that and you increase uh, intensity with uh leverage um with all the other exercises um at least if the athletes can do us we work rpe based So um, we measure intensity with how heavy it felt for uh, the athlete. And you can do then 100 kg dip on an RPE of 10. So it felt like 100%, you can do nothing more, or you can do that um, dip with 100 kg on an RPE of eight. So meaning you could roughly do two reps more. And um, if you are at eight, then you can add um, a bit of weight to it because you're ready to to unlock um, the next step of intensity. And um, again, here with the type of assistant, uh, the type of exercise, the the rep range itself, um, you have different methods, um, but with the main lifts, we usually work with RPE progressions. That means we program a reps and set schemes and once the RPE average that we wished is achieved, mm-hmm. then we uh, increase the weight. That is the, the most common one that we use for the compound lift.
0: Oh, that's interesting, yeah, because I'm, I'm not so familiar with uh, working with just like RP, RPE. Um... Oh, you
1: do, you do, because that's what everyone does. Everyone <laughs> works with RPEs without knowing it. Yeah. Um,
0: but so I guess in, in terms of a, is... a specific measure where you're measuring it, like one to 10 on, on everything, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. So, um, but that, is that something, yeah. Say through a training log, you get everyone to log yeah. for each set, like w- what they're, they're on. Um, and then if so, yeah, sort of what range of RPE sometimes are you looking for, for it to drop down to before moving on? Is there a certain sort of ideal so like for, number
1: for, uh... I'm just putting it a bit more general than it's good, but um, for ranges below five reps, we usually go with RPE seven to nine before we progress. So we stay away one to three reps from failure um, with hypertrophy assistance and exercises with a very low risk of injury, um, all in, usually always. So RPE nine to ten or eight mm-hmm. to ten. Um, because if you put an athlete uh, i don't know on a chest fly and you write down rpe 10 he ends up eight anyway (laughs) because it's a it's a it's a rare skill being able to really work uh, to to full failure Hmm. so yeah but with you know injury like exercise with low risk of injury hypertrophy assistance rpe 8 to 10 all in just go to failure and with the heavier compound lifts with you know risk of injury, you might also have them. That's another point. Um, the frequency matters. So if you do a, a lift three times a week, you train it on a lower RPE each session. Um, if you train it just once or twice a week, you train it on a higher RPE because you have more time to, to recover. But seven to nine for um, main lifts and eight to 10 for, assistance is a good starting point you can't go wrong with
0: yeah no yeah that that makes sense to me with with those ranges and for the reasons you listed and i guess um with that that thing around um the skill of pushing yourself in and identifying your um your point i guess maybe that's one of the um the most valuable points if you get to get have a, a a client or Uh, a coach in person versus like always an online, you know, people are taking away the work and doing it themselves versus um, when you work in person, sometimes yeah, you can push that person to reach more of that, that higher actual 10 RPE Mm -hmm. versus the um, perceived, Oh, I'm working. I'm I'm working at the 10.
1: As we're coaching just online, uh, we have some workarounds there. Um the, the most common workaround is uh just totally ignore the RPE uh the client wrote down and just um a good exercise to to teach failure is the hack squad. Mm-hmm. Um and just you know, you start with random reps and set scheme, and the athlete will write down it was RPE eight. And then I just double the rates. I just double it. <laughs> we had 10 and then I just write down 20 on the same uh weight. And then uh, they will all go to 20 or even close to 20. Uh, they can do it. And that, you know, you need then if you're not there in person and you see where, where failure is at a certain point, you really need to, to use tools like this um, to show athletes where failure is.
0: Yeah, this that's what really what
1: failure feels like.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, and this loops back to where I wanted to delve a bit more about how you tried to seek to understand someone when you first start working with them, right? And you mentioned training history before and um, this sort of uh, method of trying to find or get them more experience with finding where. Uh, where their rpe actually sits is is quite quite interesting and i like that um example with the hack squat because yeah like they can't really uh, again it's one of those things where risk is probably very very low right so yeah, you just need
1: to stand up again that's, yeah. that's all you need to do just push the sled up you cannot yeah. die there you you need to be uh, an idiot to get injured there so.
0: <laughs> Um, but yeah, what, what else do you normally try to ask about or try to um, seek to understand about, you know, especially like maybe before um, programming, but then through the first few phases mm-hmm. as well, what specifically might you be looking out for?
1: Mm-hmm. That also changed over the, um, the last years and months. Um, at first, I tried to gain so much information um before starting coaching and now we reduce that um to really numbers videos so before we are really working with a client i see them so i never sell someone a coaching before i have seen him or her training because only if i saw that in before i know can i do this am i the right coach are my ideas really fitting to their needs then we have like uh, a sales process of, of two calls so just, you know, a first call finding out if the service really that What the athletes looking for is the, the time frame that we, you know, uh, at least coach, is that something that works, you know, getting all that stuff done. Second call is all about training numbers, executions, training, history, um, injury history and all that stuff to make sure that we can really help the athlete and, um, The rest then is uh, learning by doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, we also, back in the days, we had, you know, RM testings before and all that stuff um, not needed because it doesn't change uh, the process of of coaching anyway. So um, you just start with the program that you think works and then you adapt it in communication with the client. Mm. um that's it so you don't need a huge process of uh pre-testing and all that stuff it really comes down to let him or her do something and then react mm. um the only thing you need to make sure and before is that re- really the uh, the injury history so that you don't you know implement movements that are making the condition worse uh and uh, you know, a bit of mobility testing in before is what we do to just see where the limits are um, to know uh, what kind of mobility program we need to uh, create for the client. But that's it. Uh, it. It gets less and less and less over time. Hmm. That might be because our experience gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, cannot tell if that's also one factor here. But um, yeah, it's really a communication process. Yeah. So the coaching starts to get real good like, you know, from second, third, fourth months on mm-hmm. when you really uh, know the client, when you also know the uh, few personal, you know, circumstances in their life. Uh, mm-hmm. Cause I, ha- I have a client that is a-, a hedge fund guy, you know, working in a bank nine mm-hmm. to nine yep. every fucking day, from <laughs> Monday to Friday, like, you know, And then once I realized this, I had a totally different view on his training, on how he performs, on how much pre-fatigue he actually always has from the whole day of working. Mm. And it made me a way better coach because uh, in the end, program-wise, there were no big changes, but my understanding and how I provided feedback Mm. and how I rated form breakdowns how i rated you know loss in volume because he just couldn't do any stuff anymore Gets so much better and that is just something you, you figure out over time because if you you know start doing all that in before you can never be a successful coach because you can work with five clients because you need to i don't know get to a family dinner before you start coaching
0: so <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not working yeah. yeah that that's interesting and it's sort of like yeah just set them a sort of task and, and and the work see how they respond and so you might say that uh so very early on you'll have you'll make sure that you have more close contact and respond if they're are any necessary changes needed quickly at first rather than sort of trying to do a more upfront like sort of assessment and um program something which is like hey here's your next four or six weeks and it's just set set like that yeah. um that might be a, a little bit just more keeping the, the feedback
1: cycles short that's yeah. it at the beginning
0: awesome and we do that
1: weekly like with weekly check-ins that works perfectly for us. and
0: do you program normally like sort of yeah. And what sort of time blocks, how does that sort of um, evolve? Is that, is that quite short at like weekly at the, at the start and then getting longer? What does that sort of look like? So
1: we we work with a minimum booking duration of six months. Mm-hmm. Those six months are usually pre-programmed in a super rough, uh, not rough in a super general um, macro cycle, putting it down into different phases, like building phase, strength phase you know four months of hypertrophy work two months of strength work just random examples mm-hmm. um, but the real training is really adapted week by week and then you have focus blocks of usually four to six weeks with you know very similar training where you just have you know a few reps and sets weights adaptions maybe you exchange one or two exercises because they don't feel comfortable or they're just not fun at all and you know Um, just changing small things and then going from focus block to focus block. Um, That's usually how, how we structure it.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. That's, um, that's interesting. And I like as well how you set that up to have more of a longer term engagement from the start and already have that kind of like mapped out as well, but then still open for adaptation as you get more and more information from, from the client.
1: Yeah, that's needed. Like, working on a a monthly basis with clients uh, never works because uh, to really expect fast results, uh, like if you sell a coaching for one month, a client wants to see successes after one month, which is just not working in in, in any fitness-related sports, especially with more advanced athletes' adaption time, is long you need to prepare peakings for months so just you know remaining on a certain level of one rep performance sometimes takes weeks of preparation so that i can dip my 130 125 kg i cannot do that today even though that is my one m um i cannot do that today it would take me like eight mm. weeks of, of preparation just to have this one heavy rep and the same is true of a lot of other movements uh, that just need a long time of working towards a certain moment in time. And we figured out like six months to have a year is the time that feels comfortable for the client to bound because you need, you know, have a bit of planning security for have a year, which not everyone has. And uh, it's also enough time for us to really implement our ideas um, of training just going for my uh consulting call pitch i just realized <laughs> exactly the, the the same sentence now <laughs> it's so uh automatic yeah <laughs>
0: well i mean this is a good opportunity yeah. to ask about um you know your thoughts around running an online business and, and setting that up yeah. and you know that's um uh, a different choice to just coaching people in, in person as well so yeah what what are your sort of um learnings around setting up uh, a sort of successful online presence and um and process for people to uh to have a great experience through your programming
1: Mm -hmm. so client perspective or coach perspective is or two different things um from the coach perspective um especially at the beginning fuck the certificates fuck all of them and get on the court start coaching no license out there will make you at least short term um, a better coach it's super important to educate yourself but always combine this with getting on the court and coach that is the the only thing that works uh you can study years in university of sports science and still be a shit coach because you have no um experience in writing programs no experience in working with people no experience in handling emotions um, no experience in uh, interactions with clients you have no experience in feeling when the client needs change when the client needs progression that is stuff you cannot get taught Um, that is something you need to learn by doing and so that's way way more important and education you can do uh at the same time next to it so that would be um coach wise the the most important advice that that i can give is really just coach and if no one wants to uh, pay you for it start with a couple of friends just coach them prove that you can do it prove that you can deliver results and if you can show that you delivered results other clients will will follow and um, client wise um most important thing is uh Deliver results. Um, No one cares how the process looked like if he achieved his uh, results at the end. Um, So that's the the most important part is really make sure that you're delivering. The method itself doesn't really matter.
0: Yeah, yeah. I like these because once again, it sort of circles back around to what we've been chatting throughout this conversation which is around this almost this principle of keep it simple yeah. Yeah. Exactly. In, yeah in training and in yeah with, with, with dealing with all this
1: yeah and uh, for all self-employed people is never get paid by time that is rule number one if you put a price tag on your time people will measure your time and then you don't have a, a comfortable life let's put it like this if <laughs> you get paid for results you get paid for your experience you get you know if you get paid for time like i can write a program in five minutes that another coach needs two hours for Mm -hmm. i would earn so much less money than the coach who just you know extends the time of writing the program uh, even though my might be better so never put a price tag on your time really always go with packages never buy by hours by whatever Always get paid for the end result
0: and so for um yeah king of weighted like what are what are the plans Um, before we started this call you mentioned that Mm -hmm. i think you said you're moving the the space Mm -hmm. in the gym so that sounds pretty exciting but maybe yeah if you can sort of share what's coming up on your plans
1: Mm -hmm. so um yeah we have a pretty small office which is a 50 uh, square meter room with three desks in it and uh, you know, squat rack, bars and all that stuff. And now uh, as the company grow, the number of clients grow, we have more financial resources. So uh, we're moving over to a bigger office where we have a separate office and a separate gym. Um, whereas the gym is always a private one we use for our own training and content production and all that mm. stuff. But yeah, just next, keeping it more professional Um, having separate office um, and separate gym and that's uh yeah the main thing and we're constantly working on improving coaching experience so we're getting better at coaching obviously uh, building infrastructure so um, a bigger exercise portfolio more tutorials we're building up at the moment a platform like an faq platform so that uh you don't always need to wait until you get the answer of the, of the coach. You can really just, you know, type into the Mm. platform, you get a fitting tutorial, and then you just ask when you don't understand something from the uh, tutorial platform, just providing a bigger, uh, bigger infrastructure around uh, the coaching to make the experience uh, for the clients better set up a call system because people want to get more in touch with the coaches you don't just want to write messages you want to have a chat now we have the options four times a week to just you know have those one-on-one sessions Mm -hmm. um so yeah just building building the coaching business
0: yeah sounds really exciting and um yeah i know you offer a um sometimes some extra like uh, programs for coaches uh, or an, do you have any sort of new offerings planned to come out or events mm-hmm. as well around in that space maybe it might be of interest for any listeners
1: hmm. so um, we have a couple of other projects with no no deadline yet um, at the moment we have a, a certification that that we have in the coaching itself and we're planning on, over time, outsourcing that certification. Um, but obviously, if you're selling a certification without being in contact with the client, without you know, having the, the hand over it and seeing if it if really delivers, if he understood things, definitely needs a totally different structure. So uh, yeah, we will come up probably somewhere next year with um, a calisthenics coach certification program. That is the plan. Um, we just need to figure out how we can replace ourselves and automize it uh, because that's you know a different product then mm-hmm. that will be the challenge and i am uh i already started i'm writing a calisthenics book oh awesome um, but uh shit is going way more complicated than i thought just, <laughs> it's not just writing a book it's um, you write a page then next day you read that page, you figure out that what you uh, wrote down is bullshit and you start all over. And uh, this is like uh, for the last half a year, that's the, the process. So writing a lot of stuff down, restructuring it, not being happy with it, having a new opinion on something. And yeah, maybe it will come out soon. Maybe never. <laughs> I haven't decided yet, but that's, that's, uh, that's in work. Just, i think you know, because yeah. people love books and uh, it's also you know an ego topic for me having something where my name is on um, you know in the stores that would be uh, a big flex for me so yeah we will see if that works but it's uh it's, it's way harder than i thought like mm. all shout out to all the people that really wrote books about training it's uh, it's huge it's very complicated yeah i think yeah. it.
0: Yeah. I think you're a really brave man to undergo that project because there is something about the book which is very different to a post or a blog or anything like that, right? It's um, it needs to have a certain certain structure it's and for flow and everything. Fucking
1: forever, you cannot <laughs> delete it. it. Once it's written down, it's there and your name is on it, and that is frightening. That is very, very frightening because you know things are changing, opinions change, but once it's written down. You need Mm. to make sure that you can stand behind that opinion. Mm. And uh, that's the the next point. It's an opinion book. There is zero evidence in in, in calisthenics. So I'm just writing down my observations. Mm -hmm. And I have no studies, uh, you know, to to, to back up my thoughts. I just have uh, things that sound logical to me that work for uh, a couple of clients, but there is no... um, evidence behind it which makes it more difficult because i just need to rely on on, on my opinion whereas in other sports you have research you have proven correlations Mm -hmm. Um, so it might be that i write stuff down and in two years when the first study comes out it's proven that it's totally wrong what i wrote down i mean you can then go for the next episode of the book which is the usual progress anyway but it's uh yeah it's it's frightening that's i think that's the, the right word for it
0: no. Well, you guys have heard it here first on The Passive Hang. Misha Schultz is writing a book where we're all going to remember and we will be and eagerly and awaiting publishing it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be eagerly awaiting that. But, um, yeah, I wanted to just really thank you for your time today, Misha. Um, you know, we went through quite a few different areas and just like with what you share online, it's um, all con- very considered responses and as provoked some deeper thought for, for me and my training and how I like to help, um, help my clients as well. So, um, yeah, very much. Thank you. And, um, just for anyone who wants to get in touch with you and your team, you know, what, what's the method that you prefer? Um, yeah. Uh, um, if you, if you we could have just, a,
1: the coaching page is just, uh, at King of weighted on Instagram or King of weighted, um, -coaching.com on. Um... On the web and then just get in touch write us a message or to my private profiles which is uh micha uh, underscore bln for berlin and another underscore you can follow my content and we also like we have all the social medias we also have a, a youtube which is just my name it's uh, micha Schulz, and then you will find also my youtube and it's all the same it's all pure uh, sports related callous 10 eggs, weighted kills, 10 eggs content, no private stuff. It's really just about, about the sport.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Once again, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap guys. That is the passive hang back here. Once again, episode 67. Thanks to Misha for joining us on the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Remember, If you enjoyed it, please share it around with a friend. It really does a lot to help spread all this great content around, and I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you for sticking around and showing your support for The Passive Hang, always uh, listening to these episodes and reaching back out to me. Remember, if you ever want to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram. That's at phaonp, at P-H-A-O-N-P, or you can jump onto the website at thepassivehang.com. All right, guys. Well, I have... More episodes coming up, so I'll see you in the next one.